0: Hi, I'm Karim Khan, and I'm the editor of British Journal of Sports Medicine. This is the second podcast in our series, and I'm talking about the supplement on concussion in sport with Paul McCrory. We're going to discuss the implications of the different papers so that you can benefit maximally from this publication. Hi Paul, Uh, it's great to have you online uh, for this podcast with BJSM and if we can begin by you telling the listener just about your background and um, where you work and what you do, please Paul.
1: Sure, Uh, thanks Karim, it's great to be part of the British Journal's um, podcast. Um, I work in Melbourne, Australia. I'm both a neurologist and a sports physician um, and I work in clinical practice um, as well as in an academic setting at the Centre for Health, Exercise and Sports Medicine, University of Melbourne. Um, my other background is as a team physician for uh, one of our national Australian rules football teams for which I uh, worked for 15 years. Um, so I developed an interest in concussion related to sport through those various angles and um, have been studying it for the last 20 years or so.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. And I know we're focusing on the concussion in sport conference in Zurich and the supplement issue in the BJSM about that. I know there'll be a bunch of people you want to thank um, who made this concussion conference possible. And so why don't we just acknowledge them um, and also introduce that to the uh, listeners so that they know that this was a collegial effort.
1: Sure. The um, supplements uh, was published in May of 2009. Um, by British Journal of Sports Medicine, and the actual outcome statement has been co-published by 14 other journals, including the Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine, American Journal of Sports Medicine, Neurosurgery, and so forth. So it's had very wide um, exposure throughout the world and through different medical craft groups. Um, The conference itself, and uh, it was the third in a series of conferences over the last seven or eight years, and... um, I'd just like to thank both the sponsors and the original organisers of this. The the lead came from the International Ice Hockey Federation. Um, Murray Costello and Mark Aubrey, the Chief Medical Officer, were um, critical in getting this whole process off the ground. And then uh, Professor Jerzy Dvorak, the Chief Medical Officer for FIFA, um, uh, has been involved throughout all three conferences and the International Olympic Committee Medical Commission with initially Patrick Shamash, who's the chairman of that committee and more recently Lars Engerbritsen, who's the head of scientific affairs for FIFA. They've been the key sponsors throughout um, all three meetings and um, in the last uh, meeting, the International Rugby Board and Professor Mick Malloy from Dublin, who's the chief medical officer for the IRB, Um, has been involved. So it's really been a consortium of um, different sponsor groups and medical uh, committees of key bodies around the world. Um, As well as that, there have been some individuals such as Wynne Mewissa from the University of Calgary, uh, Karen Johnston from Toronto and Montreal, um, who have been... Um, involved at the scientific organisational levels and the publish, pub, publication levels uh, throughout. So all of those people I'd just like to thank for their, their work over many years. I hope I haven't forgotten too many other people. The um, most recent conference we had 27 participants in the panel discussions and each and every one of those contributed um, their expertise and time as well. They're all listed in the uh, publications.
0: That's great, Paul. Thank you. In the consensus statement that we'll talk about uh, quite a bit. So um, you'll be sort of trying to capture all these people's thoughts and we're really acknowledging that this is a team effort. And uh, if any of those contributors want to join the podcast, um, you know, add their own podcast, BJSM is going to welcome that. So it's an inclusive community. Paul, uh, let's – in terms of the structure of this uh, for the listener, we're going to just talk – just give a brief overview of the concussion supplement so that people know what's in the supplement. They can go to the BJSM homepage, which is bjsm.bmj.com. And uh, I just want you to sort of tantalize them and uh, just explain why uh, the articles in the supplement are interesting and, and who should read them before we go into two conversations. One will be for the junior doctor and one will be for the more senior doctor. Okay. So Paul, um it starts off with your and so it's it's I one, page one of the supplement, it starts off with your editorial with Yuji Torak, Mike Aubrey, Mick Malloy and Lars Engerbretsen who you just mentioned, about concussion on Frontier. So do you want to just um give us a brief snippet about that, please?
1: Sure. I think just going back a step, it's probably worth just explaining how the supplement came about, um, which relates to the conferences. Now, this is discussed in that editorial, but essentially we started in 2001 um, with with the first conference, which was just a gathering of experts um, coming up with some recommendations. And that was the first time internationally that all the people working in the field had actually gathered in one place to sort of thrash out some issues. That was repeated in Prague in 2004, um, developing some new ideas and so forth. But what changed this time in Zurich, um, when the meeting was held in November last year, was that we did it as a formal consensus conference using an NIH-type model. What that means is that... um, The people organising the conference need to come up with a list of topics. Each of those topics has a systematic review um, process of the evidence within those topics. These are then presented at an open meeting and then following that meeting and the questions and discussions that occur, some chosen panellists get together and um, thrash out the various questions to, to provide some sort of resolution or some sort of expert guidance. The panellists themselves are chosen from people who are experts in the field, but more importantly they're uh, free from any financial conflicts of interest. That's one of the key issues of a true NIH uh, model. So having said all that, um, the supplement has 12 papers. Each one of those is one of the topics that was discussed at the meeting, and these provide the background to the meeting. So these are the evidence-based papers, they talk about um, the levels of evidence where relevant or what's missing in the literature and so forth, and they go through each of the key topics. So um, the editorial we wrote was really just to try to pull that concept together and say that um, this is truly an international consensus. It crosses all boundaries, geographic and, and team sports. It's not just um, uh, localised to a particular country. And hopefully it it, it shares the um, experience and The expertise of all the people who participated
0: brilliant yeah uh, thanks for that and it's a great starting place and underscoring that there's 14 journals have taken the consensus statement which we'll get to so paul the first of the articles after the editorials from the new zealand group with yourself and it's about the self-report scales and checklists for measurement of concussion symptoms um what's what's valuable about that for the reader
1: I think for the reader, it highlights um, the fact that we we tend to use symptoms as the key to make a diagnosis and to work out when people recover from these injuries. And this is really going back to the basics and saying, well, what symptoms are actually shown to be of use um, and what is the evidence for those symptoms? Which scales should we use? There are many different checklists and scales out there. And this summarises the evidence for those and where... The scientific data has been published uh, to support their use. Um, the group in New Zealand, led by John Sullivan at the University of Otago, um, has been very active looking at this this area in rugby, particularly. Um, so it's a, it's a really important background contribution to the. The uh, assessment tools that we'll talk about later,
0: and then on page thirteen we get into the issue of, uh, of kids and concussion, which comes up a couple of times. Um, the first one's about symptom assessment and approaches. So tell us about that.
1: Yes, um, this is led by Jerry Goyer, who's a neuropsychologist from uh, Washington DC at Washington Children's Hospital there, and um, again, is trying to work out what the appropriate. Um, assessment for children really are you know whether we can use adult uh, scales and adult tools um, to jump ahead to the assessment we've built a, a tool um, which is available for free downloads from the journal website um, which works down to the age of 10 um, so anybody above that age we can use a tool for below that age uh, Jerry's group is developing a pediatric uh, scat tool um, which will hopefully be published later in the year, uh, which covers some of the issues that kids, for example, uh, may not understand some of the adult terms, the symptoms and so forth, and so we need to use languages that's suitable for those age groups. Um, so he's really sort of backgrounding that information um, to assist in management uh, of school-age kids who may get concussed.
0: Yeah, no, that's brilliant and that was one of the innovations of this conference um, over the previous two, I appreciate uh, the, the kids' issue. So Paul, I think it's a reasonable time to talk about the SCAT because we're going to get back to it a few times. So even though it's on page um, 85 and then the pocket SCAT's on page 89, why don't you tell us about the scats?
1: Sure, just to start with the pocket SCAT, what this is is a, um, a pocket-sized card which just details the typical symptoms of concussion. Um, a series of half a dozen questions that can be asked of a potentially concussed athlete testing their memory, and then a single balance task. All of these things um, may indicate somebody's got concussion and may need a formal medical assessment. The pocket scat's designed to be used by lay people, referees, coaches, first aiders, parents, and so forth, as a simple tool um, or a, a simple uh, aid memoir that they can carry in their pocket and um, potentially make that diagnosis. So that's the lay tool. The SCAT-2 is called that because it's an evolution from the original SCAT, which was developed after the Prague conference in 2004. It is a far more detailed assessment, and it's really designed for doctors and medical staff to assess somebody who's been injured and concussed, and it contains a number of elements. One is the symptoms that the person experiences and grades those according to a severity scale. One is an assessment of their memory and brain function. And then an assessment of their balance, which is a particularly sensitive measure in the first 72 hours after an injury, and it's important to encompass that in the overall assessment. So it has those elements which help diagnose and help uh, manage the, the condition. And it goes through each of those areas in a lot of detail. And as well as that, it also provides some important immediate assessment tools such as the Glasgow Coma Scale, which many emergency physicians would be familiar with. And that's a, a scale that uh, can be used to record and follow the progress, particularly of more severe injuries. So if somebody deteriorates um, further down the track, you've got some important baseline measures in there as well. So it runs to... Um, uh, four pages. This whole assessment, and as well as being an assessment, it can all be also be incorporated in a medical record um, uh, for for a doctor's assessment of the injury. So we have those two separate tools. They're both freely available. There's no copyright issues. Um, we found after the last meeting that the original SCAT. Um, has been taken up throughout the world and and both within the traumatic brain injury field, such as emergency departments and so forth, as well as in sports. So that's particularly encouraging. At the meeting in Zurich, we actually presented a number of research papers where people had validated aspects of it or looked at the sensitivity of the tool um, and it was based on those scientific studies that we uh, redesigned and, and redeveloped the SCAT to be what we hope a far more effective tool. It's important to note though that um, this tool will also require formal validation and and sensitivity and specificity studies and so forth, and these are being done as we speak. So over time, um, we hope that this tool will evolve into a very useful um, brief assessment for people with sport-related concussion and other forms of mild head injury.
0: So the pocket SCAT is for the lay, lay people and that's available in this more detailed SCAT 2, which stands for Sport Concussion Assessment Tool, um, is for clinical clinicians' use. And uh, I'm sure you would encourage people who want to do research on either of these tools to be in touch with people who are on the organising group. It's, it's, not a, it's not a sort of a select cabal. I'm sure you'd be happy to guide people if they wanted to.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's one of the strengths of the SCAT that we saw after the last meeting, that although um, clinicians are familiar with or have heard of concussion, they may not be familiar with the details of all the assessments. And this just provides a structure to assist them in that regard. But you're right. Um, I'm sure any, any of us on the panel would be willing and eager to assist people with an interest in this area.
0: And so that's around uh, page 85 of the supplement. And then the abstracts you were mentioning, people want to see some of the scientific data that were discussed. That's on page 91 of the supplement. Um, So, Paul, I think the next logical step actually is to talk about the knowledge translation because, you know, you have clearly focused on, trying to make a difference. This is research into action. And uh, there's a paper on page 68 about the knowledge translation. So just tell us about that, because that's a pioneering move and something that BJSM is big on. Um, We want to make that a really important channel for BJSM, as well as our original research and our education. We want to be into this knowledge translation thing. So tell the listener about um, your efforts and your thoughts about that and why it was a priority at this meeting. Um,
1: we all felt it was a priority. I mean, most of us in academic research recognise that knowledge translation is the other side of the coin to the actual research process. Um, having said that, um, I don't think I can claim any credit for this. Uh, Karen Johnson from, from Montreal and Toronto um, has been very active in this area. She she is a neurosurgeon by training and has been involved in NHL ice hockey Uh, for some time, and through a number of Canadian organisations, such as the Think First programs and so forth, she's developed um, concussion roadshows and so forth, and been very proactive in getting out there and getting the message across about concussion. So she and um, Christine Providenza uh, wrote a very neat article sort of summarising the various principles of knowledge transfer when it's applied to this area, what can be done, um, both what has been done and, and sort of researched in the past and a number of suggestions for the future based on you know a wealth of experience of doing this in, in real life. So it's a terrific article and um, yeah, I think not only does British Journal sort of um, encourage knowledge translation, but I think all of us who work in any aspect of sports medicine need to get the message across to, our, to the athletes, to the coaches, parents and so forth um, about the importance of injuries and the importance of il- injury prevention. So this is a very good example of that.
0: And uh, you know, we'll just try and move through these other five or six papers and then uh, get into uh, our discussion about the, the practical take-home messages for different types of doctors. Um, so yeah. we talked about kids in terms of assessment. Why don't we finish off with kids and uh, talk about the return to sport guidelines for kids or should we talk about the return to sport guidelines in general first? Uh,
1: no, I think I think it would flow Um, very well, to talk about the children's sort of issues. Go for it. Um, We mentioned Jerry Goya and his uh, group from Washington Children's. Um, Laura Purcell, who's an emergency paediatrician from London, Ontario, in Canada, um, wrote about return-to-play guidelines. She's involved in this through the Canadian Paediatric Society and has written or been involved in the um, position statement that they developed a year or so ago in this area. And again, um, it's important to emphasise with children that we do need to be more conservative, that uh, we don't recommend return to play on the day of the injury, and that we emphasise that a formal medical assessment is very important. There are some differences in the way we assess children from a neuropsychological perspective, how they've recovered brain function and so forth. Um, So there are some key issues that, that need to be considered, and we devoted a whole session of the open meeting at, in Zurich to this issue of paediatric concussion to try and develop this this important area um, in a lot more depth. So uh, Jerry's paper on the neuropsychological aspects, um, Laura's work in the um, return to play guidelines and also within the uh, paper by Gavin Davis and... Grant Iverson and so forth, talking about neuroimaging, balance testing, and so forth. Um, uh, there are um, aspects of that related to children and adults as well. So there are paediatric issues covered throughout that. And as I mentioned, we now have a subcommittee uh, with Laura uh, Purcell, Jerry Goya, Gavin Davis, who's a neurosurgeon from Australia, Vicki Anderson, a neuropsychologist uh, from the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, Australia, and uh, Mike McRae from America, all of whom are uh, actively developing and plan to validate, oh sorry, and Kevin Guskowitz as well from um, America, all of whom are actively uh, developing and then will validate a paediatric version of the SCAT tool. So there's quite, quite an active group interested in that area and I think um, it's an important and relatively understudied um, area so... Um, I think we've devoted quite a bit of time and effort to try and get across that message of how children should be um, managed in that regard. And it's interesting that um, at the ACSM meeting a week or so ago, just prior to that, in Washington State, um, US, the governor signed into law uh, um, a law mandating medical assessment for under 18 children have been concussed? So, I think there's a lot of concern and a lot of issue out there about the appropriate management of children uh, who are concussed. And I think our work and the evidence presented in the supplement really feeds into all that. Yeah,
0: absolutely, Paul. And uh, you know, these popular sports like hockey and various football codes, you know, this uh, concussion is a huge issue. And parents are making choices about kids playing sport. And if we're trying to encourage physical activity, we need to take care of this. So. You know, credit to you guys for getting into that in a big way. Um, while we're on assessment, let's um, stick with the simple versus uh, complex classification. Uh, that was something that came up in uh, Prague.
1: Mm. Just just to um, background that a little bit, um, in Prague, we developed a, a new concept uh, which we labelled simple versus complex. Complex, Simple being the sort of concussion that recovers within seven days and complex um, concussion is one where people take longer than seven days to recover and usually have more significant and, and um, a greater range of symptoms. We, we revisited that because um, the terminology over the last three years has been sort of discussed in various papers and it's been a controversial um, uh, theory. and We went back and Michael McDissie, a sports physician, sort of reviewed the evidence and the literature that have been published in the three years uh, since the last conference. And at the end of the day, um, the panellists felt that there was certainly a useful separation between the brief concussions and the more long-lasting ones and different management strategies, strategies that need to be applied for both. However, the sticking point is the terminology. We couldn't agree on a an appropriate name um, that really reflects um, those two different situations. The use of the term simple kind of implies that it might not be a problem, uh, which is not the message we wanted to get across. So we dropped the terminology but retained the concept. And uh, Michael summarised, as I said, the, the evidence and the research that's been published in that area. But we, we spent a bit of time trying to come up with a better name for both these. And um, at the end of the day, we just had to acknowledge the fact that we couldn't agree on a, on a name, but we supported this this idea that there was a differentiation in outcome between these two different forms of concussion.
0: And uh, we'll probably come on the implications of that when we talk in the sort of next section, um, not this specific podcast. So on the subject of assessment and telling how severe something is, the concussion is, um, why don't you talk about the paper on page 36 where you touched on about new imaging balance measures, blood markers, how's that assessment situation going right now?
1: Um, this is really reviewing the evidence and um, one, one of the important things to realise is that many of the things that have been proposed don't have a lot of good, what we'd call class 1 evidence associated with the recommendations. Just to just to go through those areas, neuroimaging such as CT or MR brain scans are often proposed, but they don't add a lot to the management of concussion itself. They might be important to rule out more significant injuries, but they don't tell us about concussion. There are a number of new experimental um, imaging techniques, particularly with MR, uh, which may have potential in the future, but they certainly remain sort of research uh, level at the moment. Balance testing um, has been widely studied by particularly by Kevin Guskowitz from America over many years and the feeling is that useful um, changes can be seen in the first 72 hours after concussion and in that time frame it would appear that they correlate with the neuropsychological deficits that we see. So an acute situation has a very important role to play Um, and this paper sort of sort of went through the evidence for that. And that was one of the reasons why we did include it this time around in the new version of the SCAT. Um, uh, Biomarkers, which are blood and brain fluid measures, things like S100 and so forth, are often useful, particularly more severe forms of brain injury. And... um, the group sort of reviewed the evidence for those. The problem we found is that none of them are, are terribly useful for concussion, partly because they also go up just with exercise, um, and none of them are really satisfactory in terms of um, the milder injuries that we see in concussion. So um, that was an, you know, that sort of area needed to be stated clearly. And finally, the other area was electrophysiology testing. Uh, where things like EEGs, electroencephalograms and so forth can be done with various techniques in that regard. But once again, although interesting, they weren't weren't considered to be clinically useful or clinically important um, techniques at the present time. So there's certainly a lot of interest in how we can objectively measure concussion using these various tools. Um, However, at the moment we're still left with a clinical assessment supported by neuropsychological testing as the sort of cornerstone. And hopefully some of these, these tests in the future that are being studied may turn out to be useful, but um, it, it's a very important paper just to sort of summarise that evidence uh, for and against their use at the present time in cl- routine clinical practice.
0: And really brings uh, new doctors and new scientists up to speed um, very nicely. So it's a good segue into who should be conducting and interpreting the neuropsychological assessment that's discussed on page 32 of the supplement.
1: This was one of the more um, uh, heavily discussed areas at the meeting and there's been a little bit of discussion in the literature over the past few years on this area. Um, again, just to, to give a brief background, traditional neuropsychology is where Uh, Neuropsychologists do a formal assessment of an individual's brain function and that usually takes several hours to do. It's quite labour intensive but gives a very good insight into overall brain function and particularly with subtle abnormalities. This is the sort of thing that would be used in people with dementia and so forth to work out um, both diagnostically and how they respond to treatment. What's happened over the years is that people have realised that there are not enough neuropsychologists in the world to do those sort of assessments on everybody's concussed, and so a number of companies have developed brief neuropsychological screening tools, which are then used on computer and on computer or on the internet. These are, as I said, screening tools. They're not a substitute for a formal neuropsych assessment, and in some cases, the tools themselves actually provide a automated uh, result. <clears throat> Um, which then tells the person who's ordered the test whether they've recovered, whether they're back to their baseline performance and so on. And the discussion uh, around that is, do these tests really have to be done by neuropsychologists or can a doctor order the test, get the report and utilise that effectively in their clinical practice? And this paper was uh, written by a group of um, Neuropsychologists, neuropsychologist led by Ruben Ekmanidia from um, uh, Pennsylvania. And the feeling was that th- certainly in the more complex concussions, the more difficult cases, neuropsychologists are critical to the management. Um, in certain situations, such as with children and so forth, you really need the specific uh, expertise that they can bring to bear. But in straightforward cases, the need for neuropsychologists is not absolute. And um, uh, certainly with the automated um, testing, it provides a piece of the puzzle that can be managed by a clinician with expertise in the area, a clinician with expertise in concussion management, I should say. So there are certainly strongly held views in this area, and there are psychologists around the world who would insist, for example, at all Uh, neuropsychological tests be they brief screening tools or the formal tests should be done by psychologists and equally there are clinicians who would say the opposite that all the screening tools are capable of being managed by uh, medically trained people in the absence of psychologists so there's certainly a, um, a wide disparity of opinion in this area but at the end of the day I think the logistics and practicalities become important because If you look at the numbers of concussions in the States, you're talking, you know, somewhere between 300,000 and 500,000 per year. Um, If every single one of those required a neuropsychological assessment, it would be prohibitive both in terms of resources and cost. So we have to be practical about this at the same time. So um, Rubin and his group certainly summarise the evidence in that regard. Um, And uh, this will be a debate that I think will continue into the future.
0: For sure, and I think as a group, you've done a good job of tackling some hard issues, trying to give practical results and creating fertile ground for the future paul um as we get to the end of of this um, section, we've got uh, the return to play, um which I think is a good good thing to talk about before we just do the concussion. Outcome differences between the genders and then the equipment. So, you know, just a brief one on the return to play uh, because we'll do that in more detail in the other two podcasts, but um, just a snapshot on the return to play discussion.
1: Um, Again, it just reinforced um, some of the previous work that basically people have to recover clinically, they have to be symptom free and they have to recover cognitively. In other words, their brain function needs to return to their baseline level of performance before they return to even training. We emphasise that both physical rest and cognitive rest was important. Um, this is an issue in children who you know, might be resting from sport participation but are still going to school or playing video games and so forth. So it's important to fully rest, recover, before returning to activity. Um, and there are situations there that... Uh, um, need specific discussion. One of the things that uh, Margot Petukian and Mark Aubrey wrote about was the issue of elite versus non-elite athletes. We emphasise that we don't see a differentiation in how they should be managed, although it's fair to say that elite athletes have more resources available to them, but still their brain recovers at the same rate and the same strategy should be applied um, to their management. The Um, The general recommendation overall was that nobody should return to play on the day of the injury. Um, However, we did acknowledge that in the elite situation where you've got more resources and can measure recovery more accurately in real time, there may be people, elite athletes, who do recover on the day of the injury. Those sort of resources are not available to the non-elite population. And so for the vast majority of patients... Who who are concussed? They should not return on the day of injury.
0: That one sounds a little paradoxical at first, but I understand it, and we'll talk about that more on the next podcast. So, well, thanks for that. And then uh, the gender issue: uh, are there gender differences um, in concussion?
1: Um, there are gender differences, and uh, Randall Dick from um, formerly from the NCAA um, office in Indianapolis. Uh, did a paper on this. But this is an issue that um, crosses over not just NCAA sports, but also has been looked at by Jerzy Dvorak and Astrid Junger from um, FIFA. And the bottom line is that different rates of concussion are seen um, between men and women looking at the same sport. And different mechanisms of injury are seen. Um, for example, in uh, football, as in soccer, we see that men are injured when they're tackled, in other words, somebody tackles them and hits them with arm or head or elbow and they get concussed, whereas women tend to be concussed as the tackler in a contest rather than the tackled one. So there are differences um, and the reasons for those are not clear. There's some experimental evidence that there may be different responses to brain injury or different recovery timeframes uh, after brain injury. Now, whether those have a genetic or a hormonal difference is not clear at this time, um but I think it's an, it's a it's an area that we'll develop um, from a research perspective in the future and this is kind of setting the initial scene in that regard
0: interesting and uh, as we get more understanding of these issues like in concussion we see those sort of phenomena so sort of beginning sort of finishing with the with the first situation in some ways looping back to prevention um, it's been a big area so uh, and something you've had your own research in, Paul, uh, protective equipment. Uh, What's the snapshot on that?
1: Um, Yes, uh, Brian Benson and uh, Winner Maywissa did a very good systematic review on the preventative um, aspects of concussion. The snapshot is that... um, uh, Rule changes can be useful, particularly where a clear-cut mechanism is good. An example of that again is in soccer football where 50% of concussions were due to arm or elbow contact to the head in a tackling duel. Um, FIFA made that sort of contact illegal and that has reduced the number of concussions in the competitive elite levels of uh, that sport. So rule changes work. Um, Helmets, by and large, don't seem to provide a significant uh, protection against concussion. Um, This has been looked at in laboratory situations, but also in randomised control trials, and there's at least two trials out there now which show no clear benefit. For codes of football that we see, there are situations such as skiing injuries where they may provide um, a benefit uh, for for overall head injuries, not necessarily concussion, and uh, cycling and so forth, where the aim is to prevent a fall onto a road service which causes skull fracture. So there are certain situations where helmets may be a benefit, but for most codes of football, which was the main focus of the meeting, they certainly don't offer um, a great deal of protection. And finally, mouth guards um, have no protective effect that couldn't, can be demonstrated against concussion, um, although they're important to protect the teeth and the orofacial area and, and should be mandatory for that reason alone. So the evidence is summarised in the paper. Um, as I said, other than rule change, we don't really have any effective preventative means at the present time.
0: And uh, anyone out there listening to this while they're uh, with their iPod while they're on their bike um, should ride safely and try to avoid their head scraping on the concrete. Um, Paul, we've got the consensus statement left, which is the subject of the next two podcasts, and we're going to target the junior doctors and the more senior doctors. Um, is there anything that I've missed um, for now, or are you good with uh, with this one?
1: No, look, I think we've we've covered most of the the key points. Um, as I said, all those papers that in the supplement really background the, the consensus statement. So the recommendations are supported by all the papers. So people can either read the consensus statement as, as a more or less as a summary, or if they're interested in particular areas or the evidence for the statements, they can go back to the supplement and read each section in detail.
0: Fantastic. And that's uh, at com, which should be obvious for people downloading from the homepage. Um, if this ends up on iTunes, it's important for them to know that, so bjsm.bmj.com. Paul, um, don't go away. We're going to switch to the next podcast, which will be about the implications of the consensus statement for the more junior doctor. And uh, thanks for making this call today, Paul.
1: Thanks, Karen.